Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Mona Simpson is the author of Commitment, a novel. Mona was born in Green Bay, Wisconsin, then moved to Los Angeles as a young teenager. Her father was a recent immigrant from Syria, and her mother was the daughter of a mink farmer and the first person in her family to attend college. Simpson went to Berkeley, where she studied poetry. She worked as a journalist before moving to New York to attend Columbia's MFA program. During graduate school, she published her first short stories in Plowshares, The Iowa Review, and Mademoiselle. She stayed in New York and worked as an editor at the Paris Review for five years while finishing her first novel, Anywhere But Here. After that, she wrote The Lost Father, A Regular Guy, Off Keck Road, My Hollywood, and Casebook. 
Her work has been awarded several prizes, a Whiting Prize, a Guggenheim, a grant from the NEA, a Hodder Fellowship from Princeton University, a Lila Wallace Reader's Digest Prize, a Chicago Tribune Heartland Prize, Penn Faulkner Finalist, and most recently a Literature Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She lives in Santa Monica with her two children and Bartleby the dog. Welcome, Mona. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your latest novel, Commitment. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Would you mind telling listeners about your amazing new novel? Oh, I'll try. It's funny. It's it's the most common question, but it's hard to answer, sure. as you probably know. Yes. By the end of a, a book tour, I feel like I can easily <laughs> But usually at about this point, which is the beginning, the middle of the beginning, I'm not I'm not so certain. It started in a number of ways. It's actually, it's a book about three siblings who have a mother who is a bit fragile and a single mom who is a bit of a striver and, you know, worked to get them in the best school district or in, in one of the good public school districts in Los Angeles in the 1970s. And then when she takes, after she takes her oldest child to Berkeley, she falls into a real depression, which she can't seem to get out of. And eventually she's taken to a state mental health hospital and her, her two kids who are remaining home and her son, who's, who's a student at Berkeley have to then put together their lives and try to help the mom and go from there, so to speak. So that's what it's, it's about. It's about giving so much and then, you know, realizing you have nothing left to give. <laughs> sort of. I love all the Palisades references in the book and Pally High and all of the stuff and, and even how you have, you know, Walter get into Pally High because of a relationship with his mom, with someone in her exercise class, whose address that she kind of stole. And I thought it was so interesting how you said like, you know, she could have turned them in. She could have easily have noticed all the mail, but right. this is something that so many people, not so many, but many people were trying to do just to get a better education. And you talk about the mom's reverence for her nursing degree and how important education was for her. And all she wants to do is just like give her kids a better life. So immediately we're like drawn in and, and sort of rooting for her. And like, because what would we all not do for our kids? Yeah, that's true. And it's also just a sad state of affairs that that one has to do that or yes. would have to do that. Because, you know, there's been all the studies, as you well know, of the zip code of where you live really determining so much of your future socioeconomic outcome. So she thinks that the best, she's probably right, that the school that she's that her kids are districted for is not as good a school. But that's a very sad state of affairs, especially yes. for those who grew up in public schools when they were when they were a little better than they are now. Yeah. And you uh, immediately highlight the competition between moms, which so many people can relate to as well when she's driving up to take Walter to school and and the other mom's like, you're not going? Well, I wouldn't miss this for anything. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, I could, I could so see and hear that whole scene. I know that other mom, (laughs) you know, and she's just like, you know, oh no, you know, like bracing herself. And even how Walter was so perceptive and is like, my mom doesn't do, you know, she didn't do well with women like that. You know, they made her nervous, which of course, like women like that make everyone nervous, you know. <laughs> oh How old are your children? Um, I have two 15-year-olds. They're almost 16. And then a nine-year-old and an eight-year-old. So oh I know. I'm well, in that's, it. that's so nice. <laughs> it's fun. But uh, 
But yes, you you come up against all types of parents. (laughs) Talk about the decision to figure out what to do when the mom has this breakdown. There's so many ways you could have gone with the story, right? She could have just suffered at home. Like why go to the institution? Why, or how, or I guess I should back up and just say, which like which piece of this story came to you first? Like what was really exciting to you about it? I think one of the ways I really, you know, with the novel this that I worked on for this long, I, I had a couple of sort of little doors into it. And one of them was certainly Walter was starting with a kid who was in college and who had a lot of the usual experiences, you know, sort of falling in love with the two girls down the hall and yeah. especially one and loving his roommate and just yeah just exuberant with the feelings of friendship but at the same time as as he's having these very sort of universal and typical experiences he also has a whole other life going on in his head about his concern for what's going on at home mm-hmm. and then another way into the book i had is i read an essay by the late and wonderful writer oliver sacks called the lost virtues of the asylum and i you know before that, I guess I'd, I'd grown up, like most people in my generation, you know, I'd seen Who Went Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest, and I sort of thought of those state, those big state institutions as snake pits and terrible places of abuse and you know, exploitation. But this, this essay sort of traced the history of how those hospitals started in America and what the, what the original ideals were. And he actually quoted a number of people who, who'd been who've been committed and several of them actually had better lives in a smaller, more protected environment and, and wrote about it in their memoirs. So he, while acknowledging he, he himself worked at Bronx state, which was one of these hospitals for decades. So he had a certain kind of authority and he, he wasn't glossing over anything. He said, of course there were bad nurses. Of course there were bad doctors. And of course there were also very good ones. And, you know, he, he had, memories of all kinds, but he certainly remembered many patients leading peaceful and seemingly productive lives inside the institution. So I I was also thinking about that. And I was thinking about how really we grew up, at least I grew up kind of in the age of institutions and how many of them really have ceased to exist. I I grew up in a town in, in the Midwest where there was one orphanage in the middle of town. Now, we have foster care. You know, we don't really have an orphanage. There are all kinds of ways in which we've changed the way we take care of society's neediest people. And and I guess this was a, a little bit of a, I wanted to examine whether maybe we went too far in closing all the mental health hospitals or mm. everything close to them out. Now, 90% of the people are, who were there in 1960, you know, the beds aren't there anymore. I feel like you see that particularly here in New York, the effect of not having proper, you know, state sanctioned mental health and what happens as a result of all that. Yeah. I worked in a, in a psychiatric institution for a little, for a summer, which I found really eye opening because in my head, I was, I, I, for a while I wanted to be a psychologist and all that. So in my head I thought, oh, okay, well, when you get to a point where you really need to go to a hospital, right? Like they will be really, they'll take care of you and you know, you'll really get the care you need. But when I was there managing so many people with so many disparate mental health conditions, all in the same 
ward, basically. It became much more about management. And I was in the adolescent inpatient unit, but still it became about like rewards and systems and how to manage. And I'm like, well, this is not the like TLC I would imagine where like you hit bottom and you need help, right? This is like the complete opposite. This isn't going to make anybody feel any better. Like how is this going to help? And that's kind of what happened everywhere. A a large thing that happened with, with these big state institutions is when they opened, people brought their aged parents and left. Mm. So it was kind of the first form of institutionalized elder care in this country. And so, of course, these wards became incredibly overcrowded. The funding was less than they'd, of course, hoped or than it had been at the beginning. Of course, that's not going to work. These places were designed to have therapy, really, and to have a kind of peace and quiet and some time in nature and libraries and so forth, orchestras. And of course, with one or two doctors and hundreds of patients, none of that is possible. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, it's really powerful the way you write about it and for us to see it. Another great example, I feel like, and I don't know if you've read Wally Lamb's book, which was recently made into that mini series, which was amazing. Wasn't that amazing? Looks like it's going to be really great. Yeah, have it in my queue. Oh my gosh, push it up the queue. Now I'm blanking on the name. I always forget the name. It was with Mark Ruffalo. Um, But you will never think about institutions the same way after that either. So I don't know. I feel like there's a a narrative about, you know, it's it's prison literature, institution literature. Anyway, you also are really good, as you well know, I'm sure, but at observing the way that society works and all those sort of unspoken things. Like you had a line that said how the younger daughter analyzed something like she analyzed the way that the, the, the goddess girls at Pally High, how they operated similar to how boys analyze sports moves, right? Like they had to study them. She had to know everything. Talk a little bit about that because I feel like there's so much of this like societal commentary woven in. Mm. I think that's always a good thing for the novel. You know, I think that's what, in a way what we go to fiction for is those little irritations and those little hurts and those little things that we feel in everyday everyday life get explained in a way in, in fiction. And especially with this family, because they're not quite—they're not quite members of this community in a, mm-hmm. in a way. They—they they live outside of the district, as you as you said. Their their mom got them in with a fake address, so they can't ever have people over to where they live. They can't even accept a ride home. You know, if one of their friends yep. is driving, they can't even get a ride home because they don't want to, you know, blow their cover. Because of that, I think they're also especially vigilant in that way. I think they're all vigilant in the way one is when one yeah. doesn't easily, gracefully, casually belong. The show was, I know this much is true. It just came to me, by the way. <laughs> okay. Anyway, <laughs> But you write really well about this feeling of, of being other or right. Being on the outside and, and trying so hard to get in. Like, where does that come from for you? And like, where, in what situations do you feel other? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think probably, you know, I grew up as the child of a single mom and we lived in a small Midwestern town and then eventually moved to California. So I don't know. I I don't think I was ever quite in the situation of these kids, but I certainly grew up poorer than most of my classmates. So I was aware of, you know, that kind of feeling. Interesting. And then how did you 
how did you go from coming from the Midwest and your background or whatever, however you arrived in LA to then, you know, selling books, having your book in 1986 be made into a movie. I mean, that's like the American dream, right? <laughs> so, so what happened in between, <laughs> what happened in between 1986 and arriving in, in Hollywood? How did that all happen? In 1986, I was living in New York, but the, oh, okay, I, sorry. The book sold to, to Hollywood, but it, it didn't get made. I don't think until a few years later. But I actually I went to UC Berkeley, and I had a situation a little bit like Walter's at Berkeley. I was I was a scholarship kid at Berkeley, and then I went to New York for graduate school to to Columbia. And I guess when I went to Berkeley, I first thought, like you, I first thought I might want to be a psychiatrist and then changed to writing. And I stayed, I guess, a few years after graduating and worked as a journalist, which was really fun. And I, I guess it's what I, you know, it's what I always wanted to do most. And so I've sort of stuck at it for better or worse. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. What was it like having that book be successful and get option, you know, get made, option made, like the whole to do. And then, you know, you've written how many novels? Six novels now? Six, seven? Seven. 
Seventh novel, sorry. How do you keep sort of reinventing the form and, and figuring out what to do next and sort of keeping this going without being hindered by past successes? Mm. Well, I think I've been lucky in a way in that regard. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm that, you know, I'm not that successful. So I, I wouldn't ever get that feeling of like, oh my God, I've, I've made it. You know what I mean? I still feel sort of hungry. I still teach, for example, I've still got my teaching job. And so I, that hasn't been so much a problem. I think every time, you know, it is, it, it, you feel like it should get easier, but it doesn't necessarily. <laughs> it's one of those, it's one of those fields in which every story seems to be, seems to present its own problems and challenges. And this one was hard for me. How, and you referenced earlier that this took you a while. How long did this take? Yeah. When did you start working on it? You know, I Somebody asked me that and I told this lovely reporter at the LA Times that had taken six years. And then afterwards I Googled it and actually it was nine years since my last book was published. So it way too long, although there were other things in there too. There was COVID and, you know, the paper shortage. And my editor, whom I've been with for years and years and years, was working in in the South. She'd gone back to, to Charleston where she has relatives and she wasn't with her assistant and she's very computer dependent. So things went slower than usual, but nonetheless, it was a very, very long time. I don't encourage that. I don't think it's good. <laughs> One of the good things about that though, is I did actually start a shorter book. Well, in the last few years of this book. And so I, I have another one almost, almost ready. Oh, smart. make up a little time. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Tell me about that book. That book is kind of two sections. It's called Help and it's and its sequel. And it's about, you know, the problems of helping other people, of, of trying to help other people. It's about a young woman in New York just out of graduate school, just trying to, you know, make a living, just barely, barely making a living, getting her first apartment. And at that time, her family back in the Midwest has one of her cousins has been hospitalized because she's having terrible problems at home and she's not eating and she it's looking very bad for her. So they want to send her to New York to this, to what they see as their successful, you know, niece. But in fact, she's barely, you know, she goes to the bank machine and takes out a $20 bill because that's really all she can take out because she's near the bottom of the ballot. So, so it's about that girl coming to stay with her and trying to help her, but the limits of that. While at the same time, her her landlord comes to her with his granddaughter, who's who's fairly privileged. She's seeing a private guidance counselor. They know that she's trying to be a journalist. So they say, will you help her write her college entrance essay? So it's about who's able to be helped and, and who's mm-hmm. not, why, and all the complexities of, of that. Oh, that sounds really good. <laughs> Exciting. Yeah, just keep it all, keep it going. Keep the machine churning. <laughs> What do you like to do when you're not teaching and, and writing and uh, and all of that? I know you, you live in California. Do you hike? I feel like everybody who lives in Santa Monica hikes. I, hike. I see you have a dog. I have a wonderful dog. Where is he? Copperfield. <laughs> Gosh, I don't know. I do the usual things. I suppose I take walks. I hike. I read. I go to the movies to have dinner parties, all that. I just, it's funny that, you know, the kids your age, I just... I just was at a wedding at a kind of a lovely, lovely wedding in Northern California with five of the families who my oldest child, my son, grew up with. And 
sort of his best friend from mm-hmm. babyhood on was just getting married. So it was really lovely to see those families again. Aww. Yeah. It was really That's so nice. I have a group with my oldest son's lower school buddies mm-hmm. and like, cause I feel like that group of moms in particular, we went through so much, actually even his preschool buddies, that's another group of friends. <laughs> I don't know. I guess my twins like put me through the ringer. No, it's really true. It's a whole different group. Yeah. There's something about, you know, in the trenches with those families and, and at the, especially at that young age, but it's kind of different than now, but who knows? And are you reading anything great? I'm teaching my Antonia and to the lighthouse, which were both published. Oh, wow. each other. So, and, and that's, it's really delightful to be doing that. So I've been reading all this Cather material and all this wolf material. Oh, wow. It's really funny too. I've been, you know, here I am on book tour trying to sound halfway intelligent talking about my book and in the critical edition that I'm teaching my Antonia from there are her early interviews when she was, you know, trying to talk about the book and she's so much more stilted in the interview that she was. No, it's very funny. So you've been in the publishing world for a long time. How do you see where we are today? And, you know, was there anything better back in the day or is it easier, harder to break out books or, you know, is there anything we can do? I feel like it's, some days it feels really challenging. I don't know. I think kind of for self-protective reasons, just so I can write, I don't follow it probably as attentively as, as say my character follows the social ups and downs of her high school. So I'm not sure. I think that certainly at COVID, during COVID, everybody was reading a lot. You know, I hear a lot about young people not reading, but I haven't, I don't know if I fully buy it because I teach college students and I like to teach a big novel sometimes, you know, like I've, ta- I've taught Middlemarch several times. I've oh, taught Hopperfield. Wow. I want to teach Great Expectations. You know, I, I like to teach a, a big novel that takes the whole term to do. And that's all we do. We just do that novel. So we're reading at a, at a reasonable pace. We're not reading hundreds of pages. I, I go down the halls and I see, you know, some people will have Middlemarch covered in two weeks in their class. And I think, what can you possibly do? In two weeks, you know, so I often get, you know, students from all over campus will take these classes. And sometimes it's the first real 19th century demanding long novel a lot of these students will have read. And and it's absolutely an exhilarating experience for them. So so I'm not sure I buy. But on the other hand, we are all on our phones and that's true, too. So I, I don't know what the future will be of books and literature. I just don't know. I think it probably helps that there there are certainly good aspects of of it all. I mean, I have my writing students do a little research on literary magazines and also including online magazines. And each time they do it, it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, fun for me too, because they'll come up with a few new online magazines, which are really good. And, you know, if you love this kind of thing, they should they should be going out in their 20s and starting some magazines and starting some podcasts and, you know, starting some book clubs online, starting more public communal reading experiences. Totally agree. Yes, that would be helpful <laughs> to everyone involved. What is your process when you're writing a novel? Are, like, do you have a, where's your favorite place to write? And do you do it by hand or you type or what does that look like? I used to write everything by hand and now I sort of opposite. Now I sort of, I, I still write sections in hand, but then I type them into the computer. And now I do a lot of revising by hand. I'll, I'll print the thing out and I'll, 
I'll revise it. In terms of a place to write, no, I, I actually, I moved back. I, I used to have, I do have a little office at UCLA, but that's that's a ways from home. And I used to have a little office. I rented an office in Santa Monica, which I'm now subletting because I moved home when, I guess, when my kids were in high school because I had plenty of time at home when they weren't here. But now I, I I sort of roam around the house. So often I'm, you know, working at the <laughs> table because I just live with one other person. It's it's quite quiet. <laughs> Do you have a favorite food? Don't I have no idea why I'm asking <laughs> this. I'm just curious. Well, you know, I live in California, so the produce here is so good. So I have I, I probably have seasonal favorite foods. But it's funny, there's Santa Monica has wonderful farmers markets so it's a great place to shop because it's i go i go with my one of my neighbors down the street who, who he carries a huge wagon he's italian and has a he's a fabulous cook i sort of trail along and put the, in in his wagon but there's a kind of berry that we all get here called harry's berries which i saw was in new york just last week they do not taste as good here it's totally different i was so excited and i'm like this does not taste the same at all. Mm, really? just, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just like eating food closer to where it grows. is just so much better. It's much better. Yeah. You know, I'm, just, I'm a yeah. true Californian. I have a vegetable garden and everything. Oh, I, I was voting citrus for you. I was seeing oranges, and <laughs> grapefruits. Anyway, I don't know. I'm crazy. I don't know why I'm talking about this. Anyway, congratulations on commitment. It was really fun chatting, getting to know you. And um, I'm really excited for your event at at Zippy's Bookshop coming up with Amy Efron. That'll be lovely. And thank you for all your time this morning. Thank you. It's so nice. So nice getting a chance to talk to you. You too. All right. Thanks so much, Mona. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.